Welcome to Advancing Word with Dr. T.D. Stubblefield. In chapter 55 of Isaiah, verse 11, God tells the prophet, So will my word be which goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Standing on this promise, T.D. Stubblefield Ministries is committed to sharing biblical principles with individuals, families, churches, communities, and our world, believing that only the Word of God can advance us in God's perfect plan for our lives, where we can experience liberating faith, lasting hope, and unconditional love in a relationship with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is Dr. T.D. Stubblefield with today's Advancing Word. There's a word for us this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul writing in this first epistle to Timothy, his son in the ministry, uh, these words, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou ought to behave thyself. In the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. May the Lord bless his word. A question someone asked me a few days ago about what the church is, about what the nature and the character of the church is, about what makes the church so special. That question has haunted me and hobbled me helpfully because I believe it is a question that deserves reflection and deserves a response. For there are those who are beyond the boundaries of our churches who are asking the question, what makes the church so special? One answer to this searching question can be found in this passage before us today. Paul said that the church is the house of God. And so this morning I want to preach from this passage in 1 Timothy, and I want to talk about household matters. Household matters in the first instance because one of the descriptions, one of the metaphors, one of the symbols used to communicate biblical truth in the New Testament about the church is household. Paul has been addressing a number of issues in this letter to Timothy, issues related to the operation, to the fellowship of the local church, how they handle false teaching, the priority of prayer in chapter 2, the plan of salvation. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, the qualifications of pastors, deacons, and deaconesses. 
And now in chapter 3, the aged apostle moves to the central concern of this letter and remind his son in the ministry that Christian belief cannot be divorced from Christian behavior. That Christian belief and Christian behavior are Siamese twins. That they are inextricably intertwined. You can't have belief genuinely and authentically without having behavior. The church is a special place because household matters. And so when he says house of God in verse 15, I want you to understand clearly he is not referring to the physical structure. So many people think that the church is the physical structure, the facility. This building, brick and mortar, is not the church. It is a place where the church gathers on Sunday and at different times during the week. When the Bible speaks of the house of God, it is speaking about the spiritual life of the faith community. It is speaking about our relationships as believers in the context of a gathered community. It is what Paul writes about at another place in Galatians chapter 6 and 10. He writes about the household of faith. It is what Peter writes about in his epistle. He says that we are lively stones. We are spiritual house, a holy priesthood which offers spiritual sacrifices to God. And so the very use of the word household or house of God lets us know that household matters. It is no small thing when we refer to the church as the household of God or the house of faith. But not just that, beyond this movement, beyond this recognition and this reality in the text, when I ask the text the question, what are the matters pertinent to the household in the text? It's not just the fact that the household matters, but the text also suggests that there are some matters about the household. I wish I had a witness here. There are some matters about the household that we should be aware of. What is God saying to us right here and right now? First of all, the first household matter is that there is a fellowship that connects us. There's a fellowship that connects us. The church is the called out assembly of God. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this text, which says that these instructions are directed to those who are to behave themselves in the house of God, 
identifies as well the church as the church of the living God. It is the church of the living God. And so when we look at this first matter in the text, I want you to understand that God is a living community. You sit down and stop what you're doing, quit serving, quit praising, quit worshiping, quit thinking about God. Don't you think for one minute God's going to get lonely. God has community within the essence of who God is. And that's why it's not just significant that he made us in his image so that we could respond to him, minds to know him, hearts to love him, wills to obey him. But part of the image factor is that he made us not to be alone. Because the one thing God says in the creation narrative in Genesis is it's not good for man to be alone. It wasn't just about man's relationship to woman, but God made us for community. And when he saves us, he calls us into community. God is a living community. And the church, the church that mirrors and mimics this reality is a living church. Oh, let me put it this way. You can't have a living God in a dead church. The two are antithetical. The way Eugene Peterson phrased this in his paraphrase, the message he uses this term. He says, a God-alive church. When you have a living God, you will have a God-alive church. When we serve a living God, we're supposed to be alive. We ought to be alive to God. Alive in worship. Alive in witness. Alive in works for the Lord. Because this text says... It is the household of God. It is the church of the living God. It's a living God we serve. And we ought to have a God-alive church. But this text would also infer when we ask about household matters that it's a loving church. Not just a living community, but a loving community. There is indescribable love in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the loving, living God calls us into fellowship not only with him, but one another. One of the reasons Paul is telling Timothy, reminding him of some of these principles, is that he want to make sure that the members of the church at Ephesus know how to conduct themselves in the house of God. And we have to not only love God, but we are called to love one another. I know we're getting ready to celebrate and commemorate again the Lord's Supper. It's so appropriate that we are reminded today that not only are we recognizing the body that is absent at the table that is symbolized by the bread and the cup? But we're also celebrating the body that gathers around the table. Before Jesus instituted the supper, 
in the upper room when he knew his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion was imminent. He was not missing words. He was focused on things that mattered to those who gathered with him in that upper room. And one of the things he said is a new commandment in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, love ye one another. By this, he says, shall all men know that you are my disciples. Household matters, not only are we a living church that should be alive whenever we come together, but we're also called to be a loving church. It's not easy to love your enemies and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Love matters. It's part of the household. It's a fellowship that connects us. It's a living church. It's a loving church. But there's also the foundation that commends us. In the next movement of the text, Paul describes the church as the pillar and ground of truth. Someone said that the church has many critics, but no rivals. Only the church, only the church, only the church has been deemed, dubbed, and designated as the pillar and ground of truth. In Ephesus, at the temple of Artemis, the goddess Artemis, sometimes identified as Diana, there was 127 pillars. Many of them were studded with costly jewels and overlaid with gold. They were not load-bearing pillars, but they were placed to reflect what these idol worshipers thought of the greatness of Diana. I'm telling you this morning, every child of God is a pillar. We are a living demonstration of what God and who God is. Each of us every day, not just on Sunday morning, each of us display the greatness of God and the mercy of God that he has exercised in our lives. We should seek opportunities to magnify him and exalt him in all we say or do. And when we function in this way, we become pillars of truth. But Paul says, not just pillars of truth, but the ground of truth. Now, I had to wrestle with this text as it wrestled with me. But I submit to you that while the church is not ultimately the ground of truth, or the foundation or source of truth, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be grounded on the truth. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In every age, the church is called to be the custodian and carrier of the truth. This is the foundation that Paul commends to Timothy and the church at Ephesus and to us that we should be to a broken world. And I believe this is the awareness that gripped Charles Wesley when he wrote that great hymn, A Charge to Keep I Have a God to glorify who gave his son to save my soul and fit it for the sky. I'm reading a recent issue of the Smithsonian and it is about an archaeological dig in Jerusalem. 
a mountain ridge outside the city of Jerusalem that is believed to be the burial place of the biblical king Herod. The excavation has uncovered a seven-story mausoleum, which many archaeologists believe is the place where Herod, the biblical king, was buried. The discovery was painstaking and meticulous. As they dug down through centuries of deterioration and destruction and found this place at the base of this mountain where Herod's tomb is located. As I thought about that, I thought about the fact as we talk about household matters and the foundation of the church. I thought about what's beneath us. Sometimes I believe we lose sight that the church just didn't start yesterday. It's time for us to do a building inspection and ask what is the foundation of this household of faith. When we look at the surface, you see us who are here at this generation confessing a hope in Jesus Christ. But I'm here this morning to challenge us to dig a little deeper. At the foundation is Jesus Christ. There's the fellowship that connects us. There's a foundation that commends us. But there's one other household matter, and that's the faith that compels us. Paul describes the deposit of faith that the church has received from the very origin of its existence and its foundation. He describes it as the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. He said, this is without controversy. For I'm telling you the things that really matter to the household of faith. Mystery here is not something nebulous, vague, or elusive. But what mystery is, it is how God has revealed himself through special revelation. There's general revelation because when I step out in the morning and I see the sun beginning its circuit in the east and moving to the west, I can say with the psalmist, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork. But I'm not just dependent on a general revelation because I'm privy to a mega mystery. What the Bible says, great is the mystery of godliness. Can I just put a footnote here on household matters? You see, mega church is not ultimately defined or delineated by the size of the membership. But mega has to do with the size of the message. A lot of mega stuff have a midget message. You can be a small church and still be a mega church. You know why I know that? Because where two or three are gathered in his name, because where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is. 
I'm so glad uh, I don't have to wait to Sunday uh, to have some church. Uh, uh, when my soul uh, uh, looks back and wonder uh, how I got over, I can have church. Uh, there's a mega message. Uh, he was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, uh, received up in glory. Uh, now, most people uh, who are expositors believe that this is a hymn of the ancient church. It was one of the hymns uh, that was creedal and doctrinal. It was a way uh, that they communicated the essentials of the gospel. That's why all good music in the church ought to have a biblical foundation, ought to have doctrinal support. But I want you to know, while it's a hymn, a H-Y-M-N, it's about him. See, every good hymn is about him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's about him. The Lord will make a way somehow. It's about him. Without God, I could do nothing. It's about him. Yes, God is real, for I can feel him in my soul. It's about him when I moan and when I groan. It's about him when I said, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I know you've been good to me. It's about him. You have been listening to Advancing Word with Dr. T.D. Stubblefield. We pray that you have been encouraged with what your ears have heard and your hearts have felt. Explore our website at tdstubblefield.org for more information about us and to obtain resources provided by T.D. Stubblefield Ministries. Until next time, be blessed and remember to stop stressing and start stepping, advancing in faith, hope, and love by reading and applying the Word of God so you can stand on certain truth for uncertain times.